Hi, I'm Jason Nichols, and I'm on the left. And I'm Vince Colonnese, and I'm on the right. And, and if, if we, we can't, can't find, find common, common ground, ground in this world, world today, today, then we're all just travelers. Passing each other in an international airport. And this great American experiment will be relegated to the trash bin of history. So let's come together to debate without yelling. And, and let's, let's save, save this, this nation. nation. An interview with the key witness from the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. It's all ahead on Vincent Jason Save the Nation. Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Goldco. Hey guys, welcome back to Vincent Jason Save the Nation. We've got a familiar face, uh, but he showed a lot of familiarity yesterday on the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Who do we have with us, Vince? Well, it's a guy who's normally behind the camera, now in front of the camera with us for this moment, uh, uh, Jason. This is our chief video director, Richie McGinnis, who uh, testified for nearly four hours yesterday in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in the uh, murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, we'll get into the details of that and welcome Richie in just a moment. But first, I want to show you some highlights from yesterday's testimony, both by Richie and another witness uh, to the events in Kenosha last year. And you've already established that after the shooting, Mr. Rosenbaum never says a word, correct? Correct. You don't know, as you sit here today, what Mr. Rosenbaum was thinking, do you? You mean at the time of the shooting? Yes. Or at any point in his life. So your interpretation of what he was trying to do or what he was intending to do or anything along those lines is complete guesswork, isn't it? Um, well, he said, fuck you, and then he reached for the weapon. Richie McGinnis, R-I-C-H-I-E-M-C-G-I-N-N-I-S-S. -S. How are you currently employed? Uh, I'm the video director for The Daily Caller. Your interview three days after this incident says that Mr. Rosenbaum was already falling forward when the defendant used the gun and discharged the shots. I, my, I don't my, see why my, that's inconsistent with what I'm saying right now. He was, he was lunging, falling. Um, I would use those as synonymous terms in this situation because basically, you know, he threw his momentum towards the weapon, and when the weapon wasn't there, his momentum was continuing, and that's the point at which he fired. So if you use the word falling or lunging, it was his momentum was going forward, and that's the point at which he fired the shot. And I stepped in and told everybody, chill out, calm down, stop doing that. I turned and had an exchange with one of the protesters, and I kind of explained to that protester, hey, you know, I get it, get what you're trying to do, but, like, not this. And when I turned around, Rosenbaum was right there in front of my face, yelling and screaming. And I would say, dude, back up, just chill. I don't know what your problem is. And he goes, you know what, if I catch any of you guys alone tonight, I'm going to fucking kill you. And he said that to you? Correct. Did he say that to the defendant as well? The defendant was there, so yes. I wanted to show that to you because there's a moment after the shooting where you are taking your shirt off um, why did you do that? Because I presume that um, given how close they were that he had been hit and that um, uh, my dad was an ER doctor and you know if something's bleeding you apply pressure so that was the goal. We see in the video that the defendant 
runs around the cars and comes close to you. But at that particular moment as you're standing there next to Mr. Rosenbaum's body, did you know that was the defendant? I did not. What did you think was going on with that figure um, next to you? Well, the way that I saw it from like it was kind of a tunnel vision situation, so I was looking at Mr. Rosenbaum on the ground and attempting to find where the wounds were, and um, it was like a pair of legs arrived next to me from my peripheral vision, and I just screamed, call 911. And then I saw a hand reach into the pocket, um, and I assumed that that was what was happening. Um, and actually, when I got up, um, I did, uh, watching the video after the fact, I was facing Mr. Rittenhouse, but uh, given that I was in the process of removing my shirt, I was actually looking at the ground, and I, I um, I told the police night, I, I didn't even, I actually remember the moment the next morning that I realized that that was Mr. Rittenhouse um, when I saw the video. Mr. Rittenhouse turns around, has a firearm in his arms, hands, correct? Correct. The AR, as we refer correct. to it. Correct, yes. Mr. Rosenbaum is running towards Kyle Rittenhouse, correct? Correct. And he continues to advance until he makes a lunge for the weapon, correct? Yes, it appeared that he was lunging for the front portion of the, of the weapon. You know as you sit here today that he yelled the words F you, but the whole words, correct? Yes. Okay, what was the tone of his voice as he yelled that? Very angry. As he goes at Kyle Rittenhouse, correct? Correct. And your perception was that evening as you watched it, he was going for the barrel of the gun? Correct. I think it was very clear to me that he was reaching specifically for the weapon and um, um, because that's where his hands went. He's in a low position running and then um, when he went for the front portion of the rifle, his uh, lunge forth like that. It was more like out and down because the rifle was aimed um, like it was lower than where his hands were so his hands were actually going kind of downward as well. Um, and towards the barrel. When he goes for the barrel, what does Kyle do with the gun? Uh, he dodged around it. And then does what? And then leveled the, the weapon and fired. And it, it wasn't necessarily leveled because um, Mr. Rosenbaum was in a lower position, so it was, it was still somewhat angled towards the ground, but it was, uh, it, um, you know, leveled at his body. All right, so some riveting testimony yesterday, Richie. Um, first of all, I just can't even imagine what it's like to, to have to be called into this trial, not just to be called, but to have witnessed the events you described yesterday. Um, how are you thinking about all of this today with, with this past year uh, behind you now? That's exactly how I feel, which is that finally, you know, despite the fact that that happened over a year ago in August of 2020, I've had this trial hanging over me for basically the entire time, uh, knowing that I would have to testify in some capacity. Uh, I actually technically did not have to because I was subpoenaed to testify and I was out of state. So technically I did not have to uh, have to appear in court, but from the moment that the shooting happened, given the, my proximity and the fact that I messed up and wasn't recording on my phone, I knew that I would have to relay what I saw to the public, uh, not only prior to the trial, because I, you know, what I saw was so critical to the public's understanding of what happened, but also uh, as a witness in the trial, I viewed it as kind of a civic duty to 
appear in court. So uh, I honored their subpoena and uh, I was actually technically, even though, even though I was a state's witness, I was, I would have been called by the defense if I hadn't been called by the prosecution. Mm-hmm. So I think there's some confusion there because everyone's saying, oh, it's, it's, uh, he's the prosecution's witness. But in reality, I think the situation was they made a calculation that if they didn't call me, then the defense would, and they, they wouldn't be in the driver's seat in terms of the line of questioning. So I think that that was the calculation, but I just am very, very glad that my portion is, is in the rear view because yeah, it, it was a very, very, very surreal very surreal experience. I've never been in a courtroom like that, let alone on the stand, you know, with the jury, like five feet to my left. Well, like you said, I mean, there's almost, it's guaranteed somebody would have attempted to call you to the stand because uh, you were the nearest and most attentive eyewitness. I mean, you were already out there to observe and capture videos. So your, your, your headspace already was, I need to watch what's going on so I can report it to the daily callers audience and uh, kind of, what, but what you're describing though is that although you were out there record video, that you had failed to record video of that moment. You weren't, mm-hmm. you didn't realize you weren't recording as Joseph Rosenbaum is chasing Kyle Rittenhouse, and then they mm-hmm. have this exchange, and Rittenhouse fires his weapon. All of that not captured on camera because you explained this yesterday. What what happened with your camera, your phone? Yeah, I was uh, on that- the phone with Shelby Talcott, mm-hmm. who's one of our fellow reporters, and I called her basically saying, where are you? This guy's running down the street with a fire extinguisher and a rifle. Clearly there's something about to happen. We need to meet up. You mean Kyle Rittenhouse? Yes, sir. Was our, was running around with a fire extinguisher and a rifle? Yes. And for those who don't have familiarity with the case, I, I also interviewed him just about 10 minutes prior to that uh, taking place. So I was actually walking with uh, Kyle Rittenhouse along the street, uh, with one of his other armed uh, individuals, who uh, Ryan Balch, who also testified yesterday. Right. And there were actually some other individuals who were shouting negative things towards uh, Kyle Rittenhouse as he was, he had like a med pack and he was trying to, I know for those who don't know, you know, he was trying, he was shouting, anybody need medical services? But when those individuals started yelling at him, I was, I wanted to get their side of the story. So that's actually when we parted ways and I was speaking to these, uh, these other individuals trying to get, you know, their story on why they were mad. And then I see Mr. Rittenhouse running down the street with the, not only the rifle that he had, but also a fire extinguisher now. And at that point I went after him. I ended the conversation with the other individuals and I ran up the street behind him and called Shelby. And I was on the phone with Shelby actually, when I started to hear yelling and I said something along the lines of, Oh, expletive, I got to go. And that's when I, hung up the phone and then attempted to pull out uh, the video app. Well, as you know, and in the iPhone, there's like, there's a photo app and then there's a video just side by side. Right. Took photos of the ground. And then basically my phone didn't actually start recording until after the shooting. And I have no idea, you know, life is messy sometimes. And it's, I, I, I wish that it had have been recording because I wouldn't have had to go through this whole experience. You know, the world would have been able to see what I saw with my eyes. Right such a close distance because the video that surfaced you know, drew hernandez had probably the best angle it's actually you can barely barely see the first shot but then the camera kind of shakes at that that during obviously because there's guns gunshots going off so i, I presume yeah. it's going to cover so the video that exists it doesn't really describe it doesn't really do any uh do anything to show 
what I saw from such a close distance. Right. It's mostly sound. You can hear what's happening as you're standing over Rosenbaum uh, as he's as he's dying there. Just I know Jason wants to ask you questions. I just have one more for you, though. Obviously, it's so fascinating. So you don't have video of the of that key moment. Clearly, as you explained. Um, so and you realize that, oh, my gosh, I just as especially after the by the next morning, you just witnessed someone die at the hands of someone else shooting them. Um, do you well, realize that, that night? I found out that night, Vince, that the police actually told me because Joseph Rosenbaum was pronounced dead within 45 minutes of okay. me putting him onto that gurney. So when I got to the police station about 2 a.m., they said, by the way, they said, uh, you're now a key witness in a homicide. And I, I said, what, what do you mean a homicide? And they said, that guy's dead. Yeah. So that I found out that night and I actually called Neil Patel right when I got to the hospital, our CEO, and because he's a lawyer. And I said, I just recorded a homicide. I don't, or I just recorded a shooting. I don't know what to do. Tell me what to do. And then I looked at my phone and I realized I wasn't recording. So I didn't even know at the time that I was in the hospital. Gotcha. All right. So the, the question I wanted to ask is, did you realize at that moment that you needed to commit all of this to memory that like you needed to start like kind of take mental notes of everything you could remember? I realized that, you know, you described it yesterday in the trial that you seeing the shooting itself is, is something you'll never forget. I mean, that and I, and I totally understand that. But you must realize that like at that point, okay, I need to take a mental inventory of everything that went down because somebody's going to ask me to recount this and very quickly. I think the process, it, well, first off, I read a bunch of articles that morning and the description from a lot of the articles that I was reading was, you know, basically using terms like open fire, uh, implying that, you know, there was no pursuit, there was no nothing. He just started shooting at protesters, which uh, based on what I saw, Mr. Rosenbaum running after Mr. Rittenhouse and then lunging yeah. the weapon. That's that was inconsistent. And I knew that I had to at least relay to the public that account of what I saw, you know, in those exact moments. But also right. I interviewed Kyle Rittenhouse 15 minutes before this happened. And so from the moment that I met him to the moment the shooting happened, it became my goal to just get because I told the police there was so there was like adrenaline and you know i thought that that amount of time was actually more like 45 minutes because there was so much that i had to remember wow from what was happening all the characters that were there the people that we interacted with while i was walking behind him so actually uh christian tribart from the new york times forensics team was doing a long report on that evening and, and basically corroborating all the different streams and i spent hours and hours on the phone with him like late into the evening just during that first week and like, I think one moment that really solidified kind of the sequencing of events for me, and I know this is kind of one of the lighter moments in the courtroom yesterday, but was uh, those individuals who were mad at Kyle Rittenhouse, they, I wanted to hear their side of the story. So when I walked up to them, one of those individuals had these rocks in his hands, apparently another one of them based on the video and what I've heard from uh, investigators, uh, one of them was armed uh, with, a, with a handgun. And uh, another one had like a rock and like a leather strap, but mm -hmm. they wanted the, the one guy just stepped out on me. Like he was going to bash my head in. Cause I was holding my phone up, like, you know, recording um, yeah. what Kyle Rittenhouse was doing. So the moment I turned the camera towards them, they got mad and he stepped out on me and I said, listen, I'm not going to record. I put my phone down. They played all this footage in court, but uh, after I put my phone down and stopped recording, I said, listen, I just still want to know what you guys are mad about. The guy was not backing down. He's, still had his you know rocks out in front of me so i said does anyone want a white claw and actually the guy who allegedly uh, i guess according to the video had a firearm he actually 
I guess, stashed the weapon and stood up. But it was, it was really hard for me to see him because he was squatting down and he was kind of behind the other individuals. And he's like, yeah, I want a white cloth. And so I cracked it for him, gave it to him, and that diffused the situation. They started to tell me, recount that uh, Kyle Rittenhouse had yelled at them earlier in the evening because they were jumping on some cars. And so the only reason why that's significant is because the moment that I then saw Kyle Rittenhouse running down the street, I ran after him and never buckled my gas mask bag. So Christian Tribart is now saying to me, while we're on the phone trying to figure this out, he's like, I see in one of the streams that you're running along after him and you stop and you pick something like big up off the ground. What was that? And it, it like totally dinged in my head like, oh, okay. So yeah, that was, I unclipped my bag. I gave him the white claw. I saw him, I ran after him. My gas mask fell out. I picked it up. I put it in my satchel and that's when I clipped it. And then I grabbed my phone and I called Shelby. And it like, it, it through that process, I started to solidify in my mind, the timeline of events. Uh-huh. And I think it was really, it wasn't like I set out like, oh, I have to commit this to memory. It was like, just my own path, my own desire to kind of piece together all of the, the memories that I had to the streams, to my physical location, because I wasn't that familiar also with the neighborhood, et cetera. So right. I, I was looking at maps with him, you know, oh, Sheridan and 62nd, you were right here. You were, okay, then you were in front of the church and then you were here. And so figuring all that out and knowing exactly the distance and how long it took me to get from here to here, it was really uh, important for me to not only like personally grasp what happened, but also now once, once I got like arrived in court, have like a very uh, comprehensive understanding of, of where I was in that situation physically. And um, you know, the sequencing of what I saw and what I heard. Mm-hmm. Well, Jason, now, now we know how to get white claws out of Richie. We just have to threaten <laughs> him. <laughs> is it bad that I don't even know what a white claw is? Yes. It's just booze. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I'll, it's like I'll, a hard seltzer. I think okay. the, the reason why I chose White Claws is because that summer they were a new product and like it was like it was the most universally liked beverage in my opinion <laughs> like and you only can carry you know so much weight on your person so like I remember I used to carry beers and stuff around but a lot of times people are like no I don't want a beer but a White Claw is pretty universally uh enjoyed and, and also there was like kind of a you know a no laws with the claws was one of the memes that came out that summer <laughs> but it seemed like the perfect beverage and actually but the most commonly it's cigarettes are kind of the easiest way to just hey you want a cigarette and people um oftentimes kind of it breaks the ice a little bit it makes them trust you enough to to tell you what their truth is and that that's really the tactic is uh getting getting them to tell you what <clears throat> in their best view is, is the reason why they're there, what their mission is. So, so Richie, um, I'm just trying to, to get the picture straight. I know you went over a lot of this uh, yesterday in that riveting testimony, and I know that you're probably exhausted, um, but I just wanted to kind of get this um, kind of clear. So at one point, Rittenhouse has a companion with him. When did he get mm-hmm. separated from that companion? Yeah, that's Ryan Bulch. Uh, so that was, he, he hit the stand after me. And actually, after I was done, I didn't watch that much of his testimony. Uh, apparently he went back to this gas station. And that's, that's my question is why would you, you know, this, I, I wasn't even aware. I, I told the police night of that. I thought that he was 20 something, but that he had a baby face, Kyle Rittenhouse. Yeah. Them knowing how old he was, them being, right. you know, out there with him, presumably, why did they let him go out alone but i he was 17 last year right correct and i believe what happened was that the 
um, they returned to that gas station and, and then he received calls that there was a, a fire going on in the lot where the shooting eventually took place. Um, there, there were people breaking windows and lighting cars on fire, basically. And actually, uh, Elijah Schaefer, who uh, works for the Blades, he captured uh, individuals in that parking lot prior to the shooting, breaking windows and like throwing fires in there, uh, throwing flames in there, trying to burn the cars. Right. But I think that that's, you know, that's a question that I really can't answer because I was, I, I parted ways with them once I started, started to talk to the, the guys who were mad at, at specifically at Kyle Rittenhouse, having apparently remembered him earlier in the night. So, so. it's, I, that's, that's a good question. And, um, you know, it's not one that I can answer, but uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's unfortunate that, uh, because, you know, in these kind of situations, he was gathering, there's a lot of negative attention uh, being yeah. aimed towards yeah. him that I think he might not have been aware of. And I was uh, certainly picking up on it. And that was one of the things that was making me nervous. So right. once he was alone, I think you can actually hear uh, Balch, who was with him previously, actually testified yesterday. And one of the things that came out of that was he said, uh, which was just in the video that we played, he said that Rosenbaum said, if I find one of you alone tonight, I'm gonna effing uh, kill you. So I think so that- So left him alone. <laughs> It's, it makes, I honestly, I can't comment on, on like what happened there, but yeah, it's, it, it does. That part was per, pretty perplexing to me. And I, I was, I had no answers for police on the night of, I was like, I have no idea where the other guy went. All right. Back to our conversation with Richie McGinnis in just a moment. But before we do that, we've got to tell you about the great people over at Grunt Style, Jason Nichols, great apparel company, this Grunt Style, they support us and we support them. They're, they're really good to our veterans. They really are. They do a lot of work with uh, veteran homelessness, also with people who are suffering from PTSD, and they just make a really great product. They have great t-shirts of all kinds, certainly for our military veterans, but also for civilians and dads and, and women, and just about anybody who needs a great t-shirt with a great slogan on it, you can find it at gruntstyle.com. Go to gruntstyle.com, put in the promo code STN for Save the Nation, and you will save 10%. Yeah, patriotic Americans everywhere will love what they've got at gruntstyle.com. Like Jason said, gruntstyle.com, promo code STN to get that great discount. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate your support over at Gruntstyle. So when you were um, with Rittenhouse, I, I know there was there's a point where Rittenhouse has uh, some interaction or conversations with law enforcement. Um, when you were with Rittenhouse, I know he has his gun and his medical kit. Did he have a phone and under these circumstances, like when there's a fire going on and he's hearing about it, did he ever try to contact from, from what you saw, did he ever try to contact law enforcement and say, Hey, there's a fire going on. I'm, I'm headed over in that direction. So two things there. Uh, number one is, uh, which is the reason why I went to that business in the first place to conduct that interview was because the night prior Shelby and I recorded interviews with these individuals who were trying to put, car fires in that business out with pressure washers and no joke, like trash cans and buckets, like literally trash cans yeah. filled with water, dumping them on the cars. And Shelby interviewed this guy literally while he was power washing, uh, using the power washer to try to put out the fires. And if you can, you can see in Shelby's footage, they weren't succeeding very well. Uh, the, the cars were still like basically burnt to a crisp, but the next night seeing the armed individuals in front of that same business, it was evident to me that, you know, perhaps that business owner had tried to 
you defend the business based on what happened the night prior. So that was kind of a continuation of that story. So in, in that interview the night prior, they said, no, the fire, the, the fire brigade, the firemen, uh, I guess it's Kenosha fire department, they're nowhere to be seen. So during my interview with Kyle the next night, he did state that, you know, there, there, there are no police in the area. Uh, and they're, uh, so, you know, in their absence, um, I'm here. And I think basically, you know, he had the med kit, he had the, the firearm, and then he picked up a fire extinguisher. So those are, I think, three different roles that he saw as his role in, in the situation, which is like, I guess, security, uh, you know, basically police, medical, and um, the fire brigade. And actually, as I was walking behind uh, Kyle and Ryan Bulch, uh, the first people that we encountered were like these punk rock I call them like the punk rock fire brigade because literally these guys had an 80 skateboard. One of the guys had an 80 skateboard. Like you can't write this. If I wrote, if I wrote this you know, as in fiction, you'd say, this is, this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. He's a, he's an 80 skateboard guy. He's got like the, the black denim. He's got a cigarette hanging out of his mouth and he's got two fire extinguishers in his hands and, and, a, and an old school skateboard. And he asked Kyle Rittenhouse to look at one of his buddies who had been hit with a, a pepper ball. Um, they said rubber bullet. And I was like, that ain't no rubber bullet. Cause your arm would be like huge. If that were a rubber bullet, that's just a little, yeah. little spicy boy. We called him, <laughs> but I, I guess that, that, that is a good question. And then I think just as a final answer there, he did have a phone because after the shooting took place, he ran around the car unbeknownst to me because I was already, I was now fixated on trying to save Joseph Rosenbaum who had just been shot right in front of my eyes he ran around the car and I just saw like two legs in my periphery, like major tunnel vision. And so night of, I, I told the police, yeah, I, I, I had no clue that he had run back around the car and was actually behind me. I'll, I just yelled, not call 911 to that pair of legs. Saw them reach into the pocket and pull out in my periphery, what looked like a phone. Turns out it was a phone, but he reportedly did not call 911. He actually called his friend and you can right. hear him as he runs past Drew Hernandez's camera angle saying something along the lines of, I, I think I just killed somebody. So that was actually with his friend. But in my, from my perspective, I saw his hand go into his pocket and I thought, okay, it's done. I said, call 911. And he reached into his pocket. Now, if I hadn't known that that was him with the still smoking gun next to me, I might've you know, changed my tone of voice in the way that I said, you know, cause I really screamed, call 911, what are you doing? Um, so he did have a phone and uh, but he did not use it to, to call the authorities, apparently. So um, I have uh, several questions and I'll, I'll try and save them because I know Vince wants to jump in here. But I, I just want to ask you just kind of a personal question. You've seen a lot this year um, in terms of violence. And, you know, you were at January 6th mm -hmm. um, and you were in Kenosha. Um, how are you doing and has this affected you in any way you know mentally and you know how are you making out after seeing some of the violence that you've seen well i think it certainly has uh, i do i'm the son of a er doc so i grew up hearing the phone ring in the middle of the night and knowing he was going to go at 2 a.m to try to fix some you know some poor bastard who just got hit in a head-on collision and you know his legs were mangled or whatever and 
I just always recall the way that my dad dealt with that was by uh, keeping with him the understanding that he was trying to fix people. And so I, I think keeping in my mind's eye that I was in these places trying to do our best to, to make sense of what was happening in an effort to fix our discourse in an effort. And then obviously with what happened with Joseph, Joseph Rosenbaum, trying to fix, trying my best just to, you know, do whatever I could to, to help him uh, physically. But after all that's said and done, you know, and, and, and January 6th was kind of a whole different situation, which is just like, it felt like you were in like some kind of medieval scene. Um, I, you know, I just did sober October actually. So that was good because I think, I think it was easy just to drink, drink beers and, you know, quiet your mind to, uh, you know, when you're going to sleep at night and you don't have to think about it. I know that Shelby, who was with me a ton, uh, she would like wake up in the middle of the night hearing flashbangs. I know that uh, Julio Rosas, who's another guy who was on the road with us a lot, we talked about, you know, he, he actually was a Marine prior to um, just about him, you know, using alcohol to cope, using other, other things, other substances. I think ultimately at the end of the day, what uh, I think is, is lost here is like oftentimes when journalists deal with this kind of thing, it becomes about them. I just think about all the first responders who have to deal with this on a daily basis. I think about all the people who we send overseas to fight in wars and who witness much worse things than what I witnessed. And so if anything, I think I can turn that, those very violent negative experiences into uh, my um, understanding, uh, to, to enhance my understanding of the full scope of you know, what many, many Americans uh, face every day just to keep our country running, to keep you know, us safe. And obviously uh, that includes police as well. And police are really, I think over the last two years are, have really been have really been given the short, uh, the short straw. And, you know, seeing all these protests and seeing what they've had to deal with firsthand and, and just the verb, even just the verbal abuse. If there's anything that I can take from it, it's using what I experienced to help tell those stories as well. Um, yeah. So kind of to play off that question, uh, Richie, would you change anything about the last year, uh, obviously, you don't want to see people die in front of you. Clearly, I'd imagine you'd want to want that to change. But the idea of you being there, you know, you, you just pointed out that um, the reason you're there was to help give Americans facts and to change the discourse around these issues uh, and to make it more informed. Um, would you do it all again? I would. And I think what I was saying there is the situation with all these riots, it was so polarized and there was such Everybody had an idea of who the good guys were in their mind and who the bad guys were in their mind. And it's, if you were on this side, then you thought that. If you're on that side, you thought, you thought this. And, and with respect to the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting, I think that's the perfect example of that. And here I am as both a witness, but also a victim in the, in the case, uh, caught in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. And the struggle to remain objective and to remain in the middle of those two groups who clearly have different ideas of what, uh, what, did, what did happen in their minds and what should happen in their minds and trying to just maintain impartiality in that, in that experience. If I can do it there, then I can do it anywhere else. And so I think that in a strange way, all the crap that 
I've had to deal with the last year. And by the way, after Kenosha, I had to threaten to sue CNN, for example, because they said that I supported conservative claims, you know, about self-defense, et cetera. I didn't support any claims. All, all I said is what he told me he was the reasons he was there. So then I said, you can, you can prepare for court. You can have me on to correct the record. They had me on to correct the record. And I told my story of what I saw. So I think just fighting the battle of getting the word out there, both sides of the political discourse, but also trying to remain, you know, <clears throat> Uh, unaffected by people trying to sway me in one direction or the other. And then the experience in the, in the courthouse yesterday was just like the perfect culmination of that, which is, you know, you have, you're in the middle of the adversarial system, which is the defense wants to get one thing out of you and the prosecution wants to get another. And you kind of just have to do your best to fight, to keep your account of what you saw uh, to get that out there. And so I think when that applies to any story that the daily caller is covering that, anybody is covering on the ground. Taking that attitude is something that I think is sorely missed in our discourse right now. And so I, I think I wouldn't take any of it back because I think that all of those experiences make me more ready to, to uh, execute that mission. Were you, uh, were you able to speak with uh, Rosenbaum? Uh, and was he, you know, after you'd been shot, was he was he conscious and, and uh, in terms of, you know, trying to give him any kind of medical help? What, like, mm -hmm. what, what, what was that like? I know you, you said to someone, call 911, mm -hmm. um, but what, what happened after that? Like, well, actually, so yesterday I, I went through this account, but basically I, we picked, somebody yelled, there's a hospital. So we were, we were trying to, I was trying to find the, the holes on his body, you know, there were four shots that were fired. At the time, I couldn't tell if it was three or four, but I knew at such a close range that he had been hit that there had to be holes somewhere. So in the process of that, someone yelled, there's a hospital right across the street. And me uh, having a brother who's in the medical, who's, a, who's an ER doc and a, and a dad who was one, uh, you know, I was like, we're not going to do anything more productive than just what they could do in the hospital for him. Right. So at that point, I said, hey, get under his other arm. And we carried him to towards the hospital. I should jump in here just for a second, just to point out that by this point, Richie had already taken his own shirt off and was using it to compress the head wound that they found on Rosenbaum. So he's holding his his shirt to Rosenbaum's head. And that's when you guys start moving towards the hospital. Yes. And which, as it turns out, was actually a graze wound. And there was actually a wound um, that went into the top of his back as presumably as he was... Uh, falling forward that uh, went down through, I think it went through his lungs and his liver. And then there was one in his pelvis. Uh, it's not, it's not clear which one killed him, but it was not that it was not actually the head wound. Um, but as we're running across the street, someone said, Hey, I work at the hospital, put him in the, in the back of this SUV. It'll be quicker. Pop the tailgate open. And one of the crazy things about that experience was as I was loading him into the back of this, SUV, there's a big mob. Everybody's very angry. You know, they've just been shooting. There were actually still literally shots going off up the street. Um, I was getting bumped and I like had so much adrenaline, I didn't think anything of it. And then I felt like a fist just connect with the side of my face really hard. Um, like somebody just teed me up and I, I turn and I'm literally still holding on a Rosenbaum. I'm not getting back into the, into the back of the vehicle with him cradled in my arms. And there's this guy pointing at me 
and he's like, you can actually see him in uh, Fort Fisher has a piece of video where he's at the tailgate. He kind of gets knocked by the crowd and you can't quite see him hit me, but you can see him pointing at me and like kind of squaring up with me at the back of the vehicle. And I just gave like a younger brother a kick um, from the back of that SUV to get him away from me. And then we couldn't even get the tailgate down because there was such a mob behind the car. And so I just yelled to the, to the medical, to the uh, hospital employee, just, just drive. We don't need the tailgate. We went down the ramp and that was when I had a couple of minutes because there was actually a gate that had to open up where I was talking to Rosenbaum and um, in that moment, you know, his, his eyes were kind of rolling around the whole time. But in that moment, I was just telling him that we're going to have a beer and laugh about this one day. Um, everything's going to be okay. And I was just looking down at him and I could see his eye kind of refocus on, on my eyes. And in that moment, my only goal was to give him some degree of peace because like, I mean, if, if you've ever heard, like heard any of the audio from this, it's like, you know, it, I guess one of his lungs was collapsed, filled with blood. You can, you can hear him trying to breathe. It's extremely clear that he's, you know, suffering immensely. And I just wanted to comfort him in any way that I could. So that was the best that I could come up with was we're going to have a beer after this. But I, I do think that he was hearing me in that moment and I know that so many people have like given me their opinions about you know I've gotten hundreds and hundreds of messages of why would you help that you know whatever his past was he had certainly a checkered past I don't care about any of that and how would you Either, know <laughs> yeah exactly well that's number one exactly how would I know like am I gonna interview him about whether he's like worthy of my attempt to save his life it's freaking um, unbelievable number, yeah like but number two like, even, even knowing that in hindsight, i would not i would not change a thing because i don't care who you are everybody deserves dignity and death and, and i think that that's the perfect example of how polarized this is is people are wishing malice on what they presume to be the other side and i'm caught in the middle and all i can do is you know like and and especially with the with the impending trial i just had to take you know i just had to just read the message yeah. and, just, and just carry on. And, and unfortunately, I, I have a tendency to like read every Twitter comment of every single everything. Yeah. Don't do that. And, <laughs> no, I got to stop. A warning from Vince and me. Yeah. Uh, Don't do stop. that. Yes. Don't read the comments. And Jason's familiar with, obviously, you know, dealing with, there were a lot of uh, right-wingers who, who came after me because of those efforts, because of the fact that I'm, a, I'm named as a victim in the case. So in spite of all that, it's just, you just got to forget about it. Keep your head down and just, I know what I saw and I'm not going to change, you know, anything to, to favor one side or the other. Cause it's, it's the, the facts are what they are and I'll let the courts decide from there. That's it. Yeah. Look, Richie, you did the right thing. I just want to, uh, you know, we're an opinion show, so I'm going to give my opinion. I just want to say you did the right <laughs> thing. Uh, I don't care if it's a Nazi or a Ku Klux Klan's men, you know, I, I'm, if your life, if you're going to die, I'm going to do my best to save you. Mm. You know, we can fight exactly. later. But exactly. so I think you did, you did the right thing. Not that you would have ever known who this guy was or mm -hmm. what he did in life. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not your job. It's not a first responder's job. It's not a police officer's job uh, to, to make those kind of judgments. Um, mm -hmm. It's, and you know, you're a son of a physician. So am I. So yeah, exactly. We know, you know, you save good people, you save bad people. That's not your, it's not your job to make that judgment. Um, and I wish we all looked at each other more like human beings 
in those situations. So thank you for what you did for that man. Unfortunately, he passed. If he's if he was a bad person, you know, he should have he should be on trial. But, you know, that's that's not something that you should think about in that moment. So thank you exactly. for what you did. Yeah. And, and Richie, uh, I know, I know you're tight on time because you're, you're talking to us today from Kenosha and you've got to get out of there and back to Washington, DC. So we're going to let you go, but I'll, I'll reiterate the point. I think Jason made so well, you know, we're honored to have you as a colleague. And I think you did an important thing over the course of this last year. And certainly the entire time you've been a part of our staff here at the daily caller, which is to try and better inform the public to give people firsthand understanding of what's going on. Even if it means in some, some instances, imperiling your own safety, and uh, and subjecting yourself to a pretty excruciating process, not only being in the line of fire and a shocking shooting, but then going into one of the most highly watched court cases in the entire country. Pretty amazing stuff. And uh, I'm just, again, honored to have you as a colleague, Richie, and, and have a safe trip back. Yes. We have a lot to talk about. I appreciate it. It's, it's uh, I, I did not expect to end up as a guest on Save the Nation for, for these reasons. <laughs> I did not expect to talk about white claws in a, in a courtroom. And <laughs> I didn't, I didn't um, you know, that was not on my riot bingo card, but well, look, we, we were trying to perfect, book Matthew McConaughey. I'm a guest. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. And we were but trying to get Matthew McConaughey, but we were like, Hey, we'll, we'll do the dollar. We'll set Richie. up for Richie. But, yeah. but just, just as one last thought though, I, I do think that that's when we set up this show in the first place, it's very much the exact same reason that I was doing what I was doing, which is like, there's no good that can come from just digging deeper into the trenches on, uh, on each side. And the further polarization of our discourse is exactly what got us into this situation in the first place. And the fact that you guys come together three times a week to just have a conversation across those lines is it's incredibly valuable. And, and I think that that's what we need more of. So thanks for having me on dudes. Thanks, Richie. Uh, this is where I point out that uh, Vincent Jason Save the Nation is brought to you by Gold Co. Thanks so much, everybody, for checking in. Uh, Richie McGinnis, thank you. Jason Nichols, thank you. Remember, you can subscribe uh, anywhere you can find a podcast and make sure to like, comment, subscribe, and share on our video platforms. That's Facebook and YouTube uh, to make sure this gets an even bigger audience. It definitely deserves one, uh, thanks to the great work of people like Jason Nichols and Richie McGinnis. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you, Vince. Thanks, Richie.